0: Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer, that we would find our all in you. Uh, We want to be individuals who are confronted by difficult things, maybe at times even wondering whether or not uh, you are with us in the midst of trial and temptation. And we want to be absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that you are God and that there is no other and that all things work together for the good of those who are called. Father, we want to know that you show us a great deal of yourself, even as we suffer, that we might recognize your grace is sufficient in our lives. So we thank you for the great privilege we have of coming together because the tomb is empty and Christ has risen from the dead and we have been filled with your spirit. And so we pray now for the next few minutes as you prepare us for the week ahead, we ask you to use your word to embolden our faith. Father, give me words of wisdom to speak to your people today. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go back in time. 8250 was a very difficult year for the Christian church. Decius took the helm of the Roman Empire in 249. And Decius inherited a mess. Barbarians were knocking at the city gate. The economy was in shambles. And Decius decided that he needed a plan. He needed a way to save the Roman Empire. He felt that one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was in such bad shape is because the Roman citizens had neglected the pagan gods. And so Decius concocted a plan. He made it law that you had to worship the pagan gods. And so, for the very first time since the birth of Christianity, the Roman Empire demanded every citizen to make sacrifices to the gods, and specifically to burn incense to a statue of Decius. Well, as you can imagine, many Christians refused to obey. Some were exiled, some were tortured, many were killed. But in the face of the worst opposition that the church had ever faced, wouldn't you know it, the gospel spread. The most powerful empire in the history of mankind could not stop evangelism. It could not keep the Holy Spirit from granting everlasting life. It couldn't defeat the church. Now, how is this possible? How is it that Everything can be against the church, and yet the church still grow. Well, because the church is in the hands of a sovereign God. I mean, what have we been, just been singing about in, in him after him after him? The church is in the hands of a sovereign God who is surprised by absolutely nothing. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail against the church. I mean, consider the church is headed by the one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things were created. I mean, if that's true, what harm can be done to the church of the living God? The church is going to be victorious. Today we are in John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. This is what is commonly known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the very end of his ministry. The cross is right around the corner. In a moment of quiet... Jesus goes to his Father in prayer, and the the amazing thing is he prays loudly enough for the disciples to hear. So Jesus is praying to the Father, but he's also instructing the disciples, and to that end, he's instructing us today. Now, these are difficult days for the disciples. Uh, They were struggling. They were anxious. They were worried because they loved Jesus, and they knew that he was going away. That had finally sunk in the reality that Jesus was not going to be with them forever. That sunk into their head, and they were worried. And so it's in the midst of their anxiety that Jesus is praying. And in his prayer to the Father, he's praying these words of great comfort to anxious saints. Now, maybe you're anxious this morning as well. Uh, Anxious perhaps about Friday's Supreme Court decision, Maybe anxious about other things. Maybe anxious about making ends meet. Maybe anxious about your job and how what's going on in the world today is going to affect your job on a day-to-day basis. Maybe you're anxious about other things. Maybe you're anxious about losing a friend. Maybe there's relational anxiety in your life. Maybe you're anxious about your own holiness or lack thereof. I don't know what you might be anxious about. Whatever your concern Pay close attention to the point of our passage. And here it is. For our joy, Jesus leaves us in the world to be holy. For our joy, Jesus leaves us in the world to be holy. All right, that's our main point. Our passage is John 17, 13 to 19. Let me begin at the beginning of the prayer, John chapter 17, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible... YOU'LL FIND IT ON PAGE 903. WHEN JESUS HAD SPOKEN THESE WORDS, HE LIFTED UP HIS EYES TO HEAVEN AND SAID, FATHER, THE HOUR HAS COME. GLORIFY YOUR SON, THAT THE SON MAY GLORIFY YOU, SINCE YOU HAVE GIVEN HIM AUTHORITY OVER ALL FLESH, TO GIVE ETERNAL LIFE TO ALL WHOM YOU HAVE GIVEN HIM. AND THIS IS ETERNAL LIFE, THAT THEY KNOW YOU, THE ONLY TRUE GOD, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. All right. For our joy, Jesus leaves us in the world to be holy. All right, that is the outline of this morning's sermon. Number one, for our joy. Look again at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice how Jesus holds out the promise of joy to his disciples. He starts by telling them that the Father, that he is going to the Father. Right? Jesus is about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be crucified. He's going to be raised from the dead. And he's going to be seated at the right hand of God, the Father. So Jesus says that he is is now coming to the Father. And as he goes, Jesus speaks. He says, I'm speaking these things in the world. Now, Jesus is probably referring to the words that he delivered during the course of the farewell discourse. That's the chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John, as Jesus has his disciples gathered around him. And there in these chapters, Jesus has has spoken about a lot of things. He's spoken about his identity. He's talked about the work of the Spirit. He's talked about his departure. He's talked about the need of the disciples to persevere in holiness. All of these things, Jesus has been speaking to them, preparing them for his departure. But at the heart of it all, at the very center of the farewell discourse is Jesus' mission to bring them, the disciples, into perfect fellowship with God the Father. I mean, that's really the heart of the, of the message. Jesus' mission to bring the disciples into fellowship with the Father. So if you look at John chapter 14, verse 1, it begins with these amazing words Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is promising perfect fellowship in the future with the Father. Then Jesus goes on to say that they don't have to wait. In a sense, when you walk with the Lord, you enjoy fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, Son, Father, we will come to him, the disciple who loves Jesus and keeps his word, we will come to him and make our home with him. I think Jesus is explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit fills us, the Father and the Son dwell with us. They make a home in us. So Jesus is promising to the disciples The presence of God, both in the future, perfectly, but even in the the here and now. And listen to John 17, verse 3. As Jesus prays, it's as if he's, he's summing up the mission of Jesus. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? It's knowing God. Right, there's nothing better, nothing sweeter, nothing more fulfilling than actually knowing the creator of the universe. Right, now back to John chapter 17, verse 13. Jesus is, is praying to the Father, right, I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is saying, look, I know the Father. I know the Father. He is pleased with me. You know, go over, look over the course of Jesus' ministry. And again and again, the Father says, you know, you are my son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Father is pleased with me, Jesus says. The Father loves me. The Father accepts me. My joy is in him. You know, I'm, I'm one with him. My joy is in him. You know, I listen to his voice. I do what he says. I'm one with him. We have one mission. He accepts me. And as Jesus prays to the Father, he wants the disciples to see that that Jesus' words to them, his ministry for them, is that they would have his joy, that they would actually get to partake in the very joy that Jesus has in knowing God the Father. Jesus knew the love of the Father, Jesus knew what it was like to be accepted by the Father. Jesus knew what it was like to be satisfied in the Father. This is His joy. And so Jesus is saying, look, the goal of my ministry, the goal of all my words spoken to these disciples is that they would have my joy. I want them to rejoice. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that our joy is not in our circumstances, it's not in our stuff, it's not in our reputation, it's not in our success. Our joy is in the Lord. Christ came to disciples suffering that their joy might be complete, that His joy would be in them. Now, after watching the news and reading the internet, you see people rejoicing over the Supreme Court's decision to legalize same-sex marriage. And so there's, there's no denying that our, our LGBT neighbors and friends are thrilled that the Supreme Court has decided in their favor. And all politics aside, we need to be sad for them. They are looking for the right thing in the wrong place. They want love acceptance and satisfaction, and they think they'll get it if the state sanctions marriage. But but we know they won't. I have been married for over 19 years, and I can say uh, robustly, fully, completely, that marriage is wonderful. I love my wife, and she loves me. But let me be clear. Our marriage is best when I realize and when Dina realizes that neither of us can be the source of the other's love and acceptance and satisfaction. God must be. God is. It is too much pressure to depend upon someone else to give you joy. And so I know that there are some legal components to why so many of our fellow Americans are committed to getting acceptance from the state for their marriage. But I just want to think theologically for a moment about what we know to be true and what we talk about every Sunday, and that's the reality that you just aren't going to get the love and the acceptance and the satisfaction you want from anything or anyone other than God Himself, the one whom Jesus knew, the one in whom Jesus found joy, and the one in whom Jesus calls us to find joy as well. And so the danger for all of us and what we're seeing played out on the television screens across the world right now is people putting, looking for joy, love, acceptance, satisfaction in anything other than God. So let me give you a picture. I don't know if you did this when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, I would take a, um, a soda pop can. I don't know if you called it a soda pop can. A soda can? A can of Coke, all right? And I would drink it, and then I would, um, I'd put it on the ground, and I would stand on it. And if the, if the can was absolutely unbent, I could stand for a good while without the can collapsing. And so then what we would do, and I mean, I don't know why I was doing this, but with one leg, I would just tap the can and bam, right? It, just, it would smack, and that was just fun, you know? Just do it, you know? Just try it. And, you know, the, uh, like, I know nothing about, I don't even know what field of science to call this. Is this physics? I don't know. But here's what I know. When that can is dented, it just it, it collapses under my weight. And as Christians, we know something. We know that, that every person is dented. Every marriage, in that sense, is dented. And the moment you try to put your, your weight on it, it's going to crumble, it's going to crash. And that's why if I see marriages that burn out, one of the things that, that I notice in these marriages that burn out is that they're expecting too much from the other person, okay? Now, that is not a license, husbands, for you to go and say, honey, you expect too much from me. Okay, that's not helpful. But, but you, know the, the, you know the principle. Like, as, as Christians, we know that the only place that we're going to find love, the only place we're going to find acceptance, the only place that, that we're going to find satisfaction is, is in the Lord. Only He, the one without dents, is strong enough to bear our longing for joy. So politics aside, the sadness that we're seeing unveiled in the world around us is individuals who are convinced to the best of their ability. They are convinced that if those around them sanction marriage, if they can have that that government-sanctioned union with another man or another woman, that they're going to find the love and the acceptance and the satisfaction that they've always wanted. And so what we as Christians are able to say is, is actually that's not true. And, and I can tell you from my own personal experience that the moment I expect so much from anyone or anything is the moment that I realize I will soon be sorely disappointed. And so this isn't a tirade against our neighbors who are now rejoicing in the ability to have a state-sanctioned union. The reality is we all face this. This is an issue in the church that we realize. And so, you know, if you're single, I know of so many singles who so long to be married, and that longing isn't bad. But, But single, you need to know that another person is never going to give you the love and the acceptance and the satisfaction that you desire. The longing is good. It's realized only in God. Verse 13, Jesus has spoken that his joy would be fulfilled in us. And if you're married, I've already given you some application, haven't I? You know, your spouse is going to let you down. You know, the reason we're able to understand that it's no great victory to have state-sanctioned marriage for homosexuals is because we know it's an empty promise, it's an empty dream. We know that our spouses are never going to give us the kind of joy and the type of satisfaction, the type of acceptance that we long for. So where do we go? If you're a husband, if you're a wife, you go to the Lord, and you find gentle, loving, encouraging ways to point your spouse away from you and to the Lord. And in a Christian marriage, it's the very process of taking the eyes of your spouse off of yourself and onto the Lord. It's that very process where we see the gospel at play. As a husband is able to lay down his wife for his life and show her something of the gospel, and as a wife is able to honor her husband and in that honoring show him something of the gospel. What a beautiful thing. But it only works If you recognize that love and acceptance and satisfaction are never found in other people or other things, but found only in the Lord. Here's the big picture. Jesus came for our joy. He doesn't want us to be unhappy. He doesn't want us to be discontent. He came that our joy would be full. That's why he came. Jesus came for our joy. All right, that's the first point. Here's the second. Yes, for our joy, Jesus leaves us in the world. For our joy, Jesus leaves us in the world. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but here is the verse that stands out to me. Just let's have fun. Just take a moment, look at those verses. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. What verse stands out to you? Time is passing, time is passing. All right, here's the verse that stands out to me. Verse 15, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Was that an option? Is that a possibility? we're not talking about, about death here. We know that death, you know, is obviously a reality for all of us. But like, is it an option that we could just be taken out of the world? Like, is that a a legitimate option? So in John chapter 14, Jesus tells them about the Father's mansion where they have a room. And so are they thinking, you know, can we go there now? Like, is that an option? You know, could God just wrap up this whole thing, put an end to the debate, vindicate the church, and just let us start enjoying a perfect eternity with him today? Well, apparently he could. I mean, Jesus appears to be, he's implying, I could be praying for this. You know, I could be praying that right now these disciples are just, you know, raptured up and taken away from all the trials and tribulations of this world. I could be praying for that. And my guess is the disciples wanted that, right? I mean, the disciples were under intense scrutiny, public ridicule, and extreme stress for associating with Jesus, Jesus drew opposition wherever he went. Right? There was an ongoing debate in Israel during Jesus' ministry. Is he good or is he bad? Is he a hero or is he a villain? Right? The Jewish leaders hated him. And we see in John 7.13 that no one was willing to talk about Jesus for fear of the leaders. All right? So uh, there was no official prohibition against talking about Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, people kept their mouths shut. It gets worse. In John chapter 9, great chapter, Jesus heals a a man born blind. And um, what's so great is that he was born blind. In other words, no one could say, you know, that he just got his sight back. I mean, he never had sight, and he was known as someone who never, ever had sight. Well, his parents, of course, are thrilled That he can see. But when the Pharisees come and visit the parents, I don't know if you remember what happened, but the parents would not say one kind word about Jesus. Not one. They wouldn't praise Jesus in any way. You know, the Pharisees come. What happened? I don't know. Was he born blind? Yeah, I think so. What's going on? And then John John tells us, he says that they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue Because anyone who confessed that Jesus is the Christ would lose their spiritual home. All right, so that's John chapter 9. Actually, it gets worse. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, that's great. Lazarus thought it was great. Lazarus started telling people what had happened. And as Lazarus started telling people what had happened, people started believing in Jesus. So Jesus heals Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus starts telling people what happened. People start believing in Jesus, and guess what the leaders decided to do? They plotted to have Lazarus put to death. And my point is, it wasn't safe to follow Jesus. It could get you kicked out of the synagogue. It could get you killed. And so the disciples have been listening to Jesus. They've been seeing their friends and their comrades abandoning him. And they have been storing up Jesus' words in their heart. They've been listening to him. Look, again, I know they're about to abandon him. Their faith was imperfect. Their understanding was foggy. And yet they stored up his words in their heart. They loved the Lord and the world hated them for it. And so when and Jesus tells us why. And by the way, all that to say, don't you think they wanted Jesus to pray, Lord, take them out of this world? I don't know if you're old enough to to want this, but there are times in, in every Christian's life where he or she asks himself, Father, would you just take me? You know, the sin is too great. The trial is too great. Would you just take me out of the world? The disciples wanted that as well. They were hated in the world. And Jesus tells us why in verse 14, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. That's what Jesus says about the disciples, and what's true about the disciples is true for us. We don't belong here. We just don't belong here. God has purchased us out of the world with the blood of Christ, which means we belong to Him. In that sense, we belong in another world because we belong to God the Father. We cannot be of God and of the world. Now, this is where I think the language of adoption is helpful, right? To be a, a Christian is to be adopted into the family of God. God is our Father. Our allegiance is to Him. Our life is for Him. Our joy is in Him. You know, God, our Father, is everything to us. And so to be a Christian is to belong to him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.6 that even now, even uh, this is great. The sound of the microphone is not great, but this is great. Even as you are sitting in that pew, Christian, right? even as I am walking behind this pulpit, there I'm walking, even now we are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly what that means. I can't be two places at once. But there is a spiritual reality to the Christian life so that when Jesus says we are not of this world, it means something. Our allegiance is to God the Father, and that changes everything. This world is not our home. Welcome to Motel Earth. Now, I'll be in Oregon, uh, Lord willing, for a couple of weeks and my family and i will be like nomads now some of you who live far from home you know, know know what this is like you know you pack up and you go from house to house you know day after day i'm not complaining it's just reality you know family is spread out so we are going to be georgian nomads in oregon and i'll be with my family i'll be with my wife and i'll be with my kids and we're going to be traveling and we won't be home i mean You know, Atlanta is home. This is home. But you know what? Mom will still be mom. And I will still be dad. Even though we aren't in Georgia, even though we're not in Atlanta, mom is still going to be mom. Dad is still going to be dad. We're not at home. And as a result, there's going to be some tension. And I know how it's going to go. Grandma is going to come to the kids and say, would you like a third bowl of ice cream? You only see us every year, you know. It's not going to kill you, you know. And then we're going to look disapprovingly and they're going to say, well, you moved to Georgia. If you didn't move across the country, I wouldn't have to spoil your kids. There's, there's tension, you know, there's tension when you're not home. And when you have an allegiance to your father. Now, in, in our case, I don't know who's going to win. You know, uh, I got I got some strong-willed in-laws. I don't know who's going to win. Um, but there is tension. There's tension when you're when you're not at home, and yet you have allegiance to your father. And the disciples in John 17, they lived in this tension, and and we live in this tension too. So they were hated because they were not of the world. Now. None of the Pharisees would have said, hey, you're not of the world. They could just tell because when the disciples had the choice of confessing Christ or not confessing Christ, well, more often than not, they confessed Christ. And so the Pharisees knew they weren't of this world because those in the world wouldn't talk about Jesus. There's tension. When the world tells you to do one thing and the Father tells you to do another thing, when they chose to hear and obey the voice of their Father... They were hated. And and when we choose to hear and obey the voice of our Father, we will be hated too. Jesus could have prayed, Father, take them home now. But He doesn't, He leaves them in the world for their joy. He leaves them in the world to know something of the love and the acceptance of the Father in a world that hates them and rejects them and gives them empty promises of satisfaction that it can never fulfill. Jesus leaves them in the world for their joy. So Jesus doesn't pray, Father, take them out of the world. But what does he pray? Look at the second half of verse 15. Jesus prays, Keep them from the evil one. What's he saying there? Keep them from evil. Most most translations say keep them from the evil one. The idea is that Jesus is referencing Satan, the adversary, who prowls around looking for people to devour. Right? Jesus says, keep them from the evil one. What's he saying? He's saying don't let the devil steal them away. Right? Don't let them fall like Judas. Right? Keep them steadfast. They're going to stay in the world, but don't let them fall in the world. The world's going to hate them. The world's going to ridicule them. The world's even going to murder them. But keep them in the world. Don't let them fall away. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. All right? Which is, again, another way of saying, saying, Father, keep them faithful. Keep them faithful. Don't let them fall away. Don't let them deny me the way, the way Judas denied me. Don't let them be like that. Keep them faithful. Keep them from the evil one. And that's, that was Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Now, again, admittedly, for a moment, the disciples failed. All right? When Jesus was arrested, when he was taken to the cross, they scattered. They were afraid Um, What does that show us? They needed the cross and the resurrection. They needed the spirit to be sent to dwell in them that they might live bold, faithful, courageous lives. And in the end, that prayer was answered. The apostles remained faithful. And in the end, they gave up their lives for Christ. This is Jesus' prayer for us that we would be kept from the evil one, that we would be kept in the name of the Father, that we would be faithful. Not popular, right? Not not accepted, but faithful. Well, what does this mean for us? It means a lot. It means everything. I mentioned three things it means for us to be faithful. It means never failing to preach the whole counsel of God to be faithful, to be kept from the evil one. In our, in our circumstances, in our world, it means never failing to preach the whole counsel of God. It's why we preach through books at Mount Vernon. Right? I, I, wanna, I don't know how long the Lord is going to have me here. I hope a long time. And uh, I am, I'm looking forward to that day when I will have preached through the entire Bible. Maybe, you know, I don't know. You know, the Lord could take me tomorrow. I mean, I, I don't know. But I want to be able to stand before the Lord and say, Father, I sought, I sought to give them everything you had to say. You know, I, I love topical sermons. I've done them occasionally. But my, my heart's desire is to give you everything God would have for you to know. And the only way I, need to do, I know to do that is to go through the Bible and preach the whole counsel of God. I think that's what faithfulness demands. And so then you know you don't have a pastor and you don't have a church sort of cherry-picking what he thinks you need to hear. I I just don't do that. Now, are there books that I avoid for a season? Yes, there are. I have yet to preach Revelation. I will eventually preach it and settle the debate. (laughs) But I need some time. I'm working on it. You know, I don't don't cherry-pick what to give you. I mean, I just think about this. Months ago, I've been going through John over the course of, of years, and months ago, you know, I, I planned to be in John 17, and what a day to be in John 17 when I just know so many Christians who have a little bit of a knot in their stomach, especially in the South, you know, in states that, that have, had not yet approved same-sex marriage with a little bit of a knot in their stomach. God knew what was going to happen. He, he knew, He designed that on this day, I would preach a message where the heart of it is, you are not of this world, and the world hates you for it. I mean, praise God. We embrace the whole counsel of God. All right, another thing about being faithful. It means embracing, not just preaching the whole counsel of God, it means embracing the whole counsel of God. Even when it comes into conflict with the state. So, let's Go to the example that's on our minds today. God created marriage to be a picture of his character and his love for the church. We see this in Genesis 2. Jesus affirms this definition of marriage in Matthew 19 and elsewhere. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we have in the union of a husband and a wife a living picture of the gospel. So this idea of marriage as a covenant union of a man and a woman, a lifelong covenant union of a man and a woman is the clear teaching of the Bible, and we simply don't have the right, we simply don't have the right to redefine it. Now, as those around us do redefine it, we don't have to revolt, we don't have to hide, but we do have to embrace the whole counsel of God. The definition of marriage is revealed in the Bible. God, not the Supreme Court, not even the people get to define what it is. And this position is a minority position today. In 2001, 57% of Americans opposed same sex marriage. At the beginning of June 2015, 57% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. That number jumps to 68% if you're polling not all Americans, but the millennials, those born in the 80s and later. In other words, popular opinion is not on our side. But popular opinion has been wrong. America was wrong on slavery and segregation. America is wrong on abortion. And now America is wrong on same-sex marriage. God has given us his word, and we as Christians are called to embrace all of it, even the parts that make people hate us. And number three, it means, what does faithfulness mean? It means receiving this hatred without fear. It is easy to be anxious about cultural changes, especially in a city like Atlanta, where, let's face it, we're used to having our way. I mean, in Chick-fil-A, they play Christian music, you know. Friends, it's not like that everywhere. You know, in Atlanta, we're kind of used to having it our way. Our brothers and sisters in California and Massachusetts, you know, are a little better prepared we're a little better prepared for the decision that came down on Friday. But we don't need to fear. In Luke chapter 12, after Jesus tells us not to be anxious, he says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that's what I want you to hear. You don't have to fear. As you embrace the entirety of the whole counsel of God, you don't have to fear. Be confident because you know know your joy is not in this world or the things of this world. World. Your joy is not in popularity, but in the Lord. Your joy is in the Father, and it is his goodwill to give you the kingdom. For our joy, then, Jesus has left us in the world. Why? To be holy. And that's the third point. Point number three, to be holy. The history of of the Christian church is filled with stories of amazing men and women who received hatred with love and with courage. Men and women who lived what we would call holy lives. I'm thinking of a woman by the name of Perpetua, and Perpetua lived uh, not long after that emperor I talked about before, Emperor Decius. Perpetua came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know how, but someone shared the gospel with this woman named Perpetua, and she was saved. And uh, as part of her local church, she took some classes uh, to prepare her for baptism. So back in the day, before you were baptized, your church would offer a course on discipleship. And Perpetua and another, uh, a number of other people Signed up for this course on discipleship, preparing them to be baptized. Well, of course, as you can imagine, that singled them out as Christians. And they were arrested. You now, I thought about that today as I was, as I was uh, leading the beginning of Knowing MVBC, our membership class. You know, I mean, what do, we, what do we now say? Like, welcome to Mount Vernon. Lock arms with us and the culture will increasingly hate you. All right, well, that's the world that Perpetua was in. Perpetua's father wasn't a believer. And he pled with her. He pled with her uh, to, to recant, to apostatize, to give up Jesus. And, uh, and Perpetua said to her father, Father, do you see this vase here? She wrote this in her diary. Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any name other than what it is? And her father said, no. Perpetua said, well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. History is full of men and women who stood by Christ. Whether it was Athanasius who suffered for defending the divinity of Jesus or Luther who risked his life, professing salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. Whether it's Tyndale, put to death after translating the Bible into English when it was illegal. Or Jim Elliot who lost his life evangelizing an unreached people group in Ecuador. From Perpetua to Elliot, history is full of people standing firm in a world against them. Now, now how could they do that? Why would they do that? How were they able to do that? I think I'm thinking I'm no Perpetua. You know, I'm no Jim Elliot. You know, I'm no Athanasius. You know, how in the world can I stand firm? Look at John chapter 17 verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In truth, this, my friends, is Jesus' prayer for holiness. Jesus has your back. Long ago, before you were ever born, Christian, Jesus was praying that you would be holy. All right. Three things I want to say about holiness, and then we'll be done. First, holiness comes through God's word. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified is to be committed to truth. And truth is found in God's word. So now, more than ever, my plea for you is to lean into the Bible. Do all you can to be a student of the word. There is no way in the days to come that you are going to embrace the whole counsel of God. If you don't know the whole counsel of God, you are going to be shot down quicker than you can blink. You must be a student of the Word of God. Meditate on Scripture daily. Gather with us as we seek to devote hours of our lives together to studying the Bible, to dive into the glorious riches of God's inspired book. There is no way outside of the sanctifying power of God's word to be holy. Holiness comes through God's word. Second, listen carefully to this. Holiness is for the world. Look carefully at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so have I, praise Jesus, sent them into the world. God the Father sent God the Son into the world as the revelation of God Himself. Jesus is the light that broke into the darkness so that we could see and know God. And now notice what Jesus is praying. So I have sent them into the world. Jesus did not pray that the disciples would be taken out of the world, even though They are not of the world. Instead, Jesus sends them into the world. Why? Because the world needs them. Yes, they will give a word of judgment to all those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are here today because many received the word of God and were saved because Jesus sent his apostles out into the world. Brothers and sisters... The Lord Jesus has sent you into the world to make disciples. You have been sanctified. You've been set apart. You've been made holy to show the world in your actions and in your words that Jesus deserves and demands our allegiance. So maybe you are tempted to avoid conversations with others about Jesus. This is not an option for us. We have been sent And if you wanted an opportunity to talk about Jesus, the Supreme Court has helped you. We have been sent. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. I love how Peter put it. 1 Peter 2.11, listen carefully. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So that's what Peter calls us, sojourners and exiles. Peter was there. When Jesus said they were not of the world, so Peter must be talking about that. The Holy Spirit reminded him of that truth. Peter gets it. Yes, we are sojourners and exiles. So I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, all right? It's a call to holiness, right? All of you, all of us have passions of the flesh. All of us have a flesh that has not been fully, fully, fully sanctified. And it wages war. And Peter says, I urge you to abstain from those passions. They are waging war against your soul. Be holy, you know, put to death lust, put to death pride, you know, avoid, abstain from those passions. And then Peter goes on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's like Peter knows, You're not gonna be taken out of the world. You know, God left you in the world. You are gonna be among the Gentiles. You are gonna be around people who think you're crazy, right? Keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, all right, so that when at work people speak against you because you're not giving $5 to celebrate Joe and John's wedding right when they're speaking against you he says make sure your conduct is honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation okay look i don't know where we as a church are going to land when it comes to all the specifics regarding how to live in a world where our co-workers are getting married male male female and female, right? I don't know where we're going to land. There's differences of opinion in the church right now. I don't know where we're going to land, but this much I know, even if you decide not to go to Joe and John's wedding, Joe and John better know that you love them. Joe and John better know that if their tire gets flat, you're the first one on the pavement to change it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles pure, Honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of Jesus. We have an opportunity to say something about Jesus, to tell the world why we follow him. Why we think he, is something, he has something to say about how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we love our neighbor, and even how we think about marriage. We have something to say. If the world is a little bit darker today because of Friday's decision... It is an opportunity for us to shine a little bit brighter. All right. Lastly, third and finally, holiness starts with a cross. Look at verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus consecrated himself. He set himself apart from a sinful and dark world by willingly going to Calvary, hanging on a wooden cross, and dying for the sins of all who would ever repent and believe in him. So let's be really clear. We are not holy because we gather on Sunday morning. We are not holy because we have a right view of marriage. We are holy because we've been saved by a holy Savior who loved us enough to die in our place And take the punishment that we deserve. Our chief message to the world cannot be that they get marriage right. As crucial as marriage may be, our message to the world is that we are all sinners in need of God's amazing grace. And we must get Jesus right. Let's pray.